0: Hi, everyone. This is Ragu back with another Mind Rolling, and I'm back with uh, a wonderful guest, Dr. Eben Alexander, who, he went over to the other side and came back to talk about it. And he wrote this wonderful book called Proof of Heaven, which described this extraordinary experience. And, uh, he also wrote another book called Living in a Mindful Universe, which we're going to talk about with, uh, for a minute. Just introduce it. And uh, well, it's a fantastic uh, chat with him. Uh, but before we do any of that, I want to talk about uh, our a couple of events that uh, our wonderful partner, uh, 1440 Multiversity, uh, has coming up. And one of them is with Dr. Eben uh, and his uh, partner, Karen Newell, uh, that's coming up at the end of September, a uh, wonderful workshop. So uh, you guys that are in the West Coast area, of course, 1440 is around the Santa Cruz area. You'll be able to uh, get on over. This is a beautiful campus and uh, extraordinary, extraordinary place. And uh, so you can take advantage of that. Also, uh, an old friend of mine named Girish, who is a kirtan chant artist, is going to be also doing a weekend workshop on chant uh, August 31st, I believe it starts. You can go to 1440multiversity.org and get all the exact information and sign up. He uh, used to work with Krishnadas way back in the beginning when Krishnadas was first going out there in public doing chanting, chant and uh he is an extraordinarily accomplished multi-instrumentalist uh, girish so uh, do take advantage of that it's uh, a wonderful opportunity just to have a fantastic tam- time chanting in this incredible environment and uh, also you learn how to chant which is a great spiritual practice so uh what else we want to mention that ramdas's new book with ramdas and mirabai bush Walking Each Other Home is ready for pre-order. Go to ramdas.org and just click on the link and it'll take you to a landing page where you can find out much more about the book and pre-order it, which is really important, everybody. It'll really help uh, if you do these pre order The book will actually be uh, shipping, so to speak, or available uh, on a September 4th. and But these pre-orders make it possible for Uh, folks like uh, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and other indie bookstores, uh, the more that they get pre-orders, then the more that they'll uh, uh, make this book visible. So more people will be aware of it, Which and it'll be a success for Ram Dass and Mirabai. So help us out with that. Also, we have still a few spots open. For this incredible yatra that Saraswati and I, you know, my beautiful wife Saraswati, will be taking people to the Himalayas, following in Ramdas's footsteps through the region called Deva Bhumi, land of the gods, where Neem Karoli Baba was, where we, Krishnas and I, and others followed Ramdas back in the day to Kenchi and Kakriagad God and Bumi Adar and Hanumangar. Uh, these sacred ashrams, sacred spaces, and we're going to stay at an extraordinary ashram called Madhuban in uh, in just this fantastic valley. And by the way, this ashram, beautiful, beautiful, impeccable, and great bathrooms, and great food. You couldn't ask for more, and we'll be doing teachings and uh, sharing ramdas's teachings and practices and chant and meditation and dharma talks and yoga especially uh, uh, saraswati's uh, very very unique yogic uh style hatha yoga style so take advantage of that that's still available go to nourishinglife.com/yatra y a t r a and now on to uh, just introduce Ibn um, Alexander. So this new book is really, uh, it's really a dip into uh, his, um, just his world where it's a comprehensive world view where con- consciousness is the f- just pointing to consciousness being the fundamental glue that defines reality. I just read from one of the uh, one of the testimonies, this is by Dean Radden. Uh and but it's uh, he really delves into what it is that happens. How, uh, of course, uh, it it what it does is really allays any kind of fear that you have that we all have of death. That it is not a the final uh, the finality of it that's that's in our bones because that's the way we are. Uh, the habitual patterns that we develop in the West are so strong. Uh, and, and this goes a long way to showing how, uh, as in Ramdas's book, love and death are so inexorably intertwined. And uh, you know how much Ram Dass talks about uh, his meetings with Emmanuel, uh, who says dying is like re- releasing from a tight shoe. <laughs> and it's completely safe, by the way. Uh, so uh, in Eben's book, and it also talks about the power of prayer, it really does, it is significant. And he has gone and, and really uh, just investigated many of the things that happened to him when he was on the other side Uh the, the way in which we communicate with those, those who have left us uh, is, is a very uh, a powerful experience uh, for many, many, many people. And uh, what I like to call, he went to what I personally like to call the uh divine presence and and that certainly was my experience with neem koroli baba my experience uh when i've had any kind of out of body experience either through uh in the old days through a psychedelic or in the nowadays through uh, chanting meditation or being in the presence of uh of that divi- that divine presence through another being which is rare uh, but uh, certainly possible uh, and he uh, what really lit me up uh, about this book that he gets it, he has a certain name that he called that place that he went to when he was in a coma, that a uh, core place of complete unconditional love and light and joy and bliss and so on. And he said, "But the coming back from there was what he called here, quote-unquote, an emotionally wrenching experience. Huh? There must be something else uh, to, to experience. And, but great to hear about it from somebody who's been there. And, and you'll see, uh, we, of course, we do videos on Mind Rolling. Um, I try and video every uh, podcast that I do. And you can see in him the, uh, the truth of his experience. Uh, quite uh, fantastic. And, uh, and it also ties in with, uh, the, uh, I I've done another, uh, NDE, they're called NDE. I've done another podcast where, um, and I'm just looking this up now, um, with a, another doctor, Dr. Jeffrey Long, and he wrote a whole book about near death experiences and, story after story after story, and they all have a, a, a thread that connects them, and it's like they're all saying the same thing. It's just uh, it's amazing. Anyhow, here we go. Dr. Eben Alexander, uh, happy to uh, introduce him to you on Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. See you next time. Here we are with another episode of Mind Rolling. And I'm really pleased today to have uh, Eben Alexander and uh, Karen Newell. And I have for quite some time, I have uh, know of you, Eben. And of course, through uh, Proof of Heaven. Proof of Heaven, everybody out there, is this incredible story of. Ebens about he's a neurosurgeon and he uh, went into a coma and I'm going to get you to tell a little bit more of that because we probably need that for setting up this uh, uh, everything that you're uh, discussing in both that book and now this is the third book living in a mindful universe which just came out I believe. And, yeah, back in October of 2017. Right. So uh, I, how I was introduced, but uh, through uh, the original book, Proof of Heaven, was through Ramdas, and uh, this is Ramdas's Be Here Now Network, and uh, he has been uh, keeping up with uh, the latest uh, near-death experience books and he was really touched by your book and uh called me about it just uh just to recommend it to me and then mm-hmm. uh and then of course i know uh, a few years ago you actually went and visited him in maui we and, did we had a
1: wonderful time
0: yeah and it comprises uh a little bit of the last chapter of the book which is uh we mm-hmm. want to talk about that as well but I think it's necessary even to uh, just briefly uh, discuss just what happened and, uh, and and the outcome regarding the NDE.
1: Okay. Uh, I had spent the first 54 years of my life honing a very conventional uh, neuroscientific worldview. Uh, Harvard in what is known as physicalism, that only the physical world exists and that Therefore, the brain must somehow uh, create consciousness out of physical matter. And I fully subscribed to that, although I knew there were tremendous mysteries and problems with that thinking. Um, And then on the morning of November 10th, 2008, I developed severe, horrific back pain, headache, seizures, and then lapsed into coma. I was gone from this world for the next seven days. uh, And the real gift of it all was the evidence my doctors had mainly from my neurologic exams, from my scans, and lab values of just how ill I was, and especially how devastated my neocortex was. Uh, meningoencephalitis is a perfect model for human death because of its destruction of the neocortex, the outer surface of the brain. And to this day, my doctors will tell you that my recovery uh, is truly miraculous. There is no explanation in Western medicine for somebody driven deep into coma, um, to then come back and have a full recovery. I mean, it really is an extraordinary miracle, which has fueled a lot of my investigation. Now, the journey that I went on in that coma started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course, unresponsive kind of subterranean realm. Uh, but I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning white light. that came with a package with a perfect musical melody. Uh, and in fact, that, um, that beautiful white light served as a portal. It opened like a rip in the fabric of that ugly earthworm eye view realm and led up into a brilliant ultra real valley, far more real than anything I've ever experienced in this realm. Uh, And that is the part that's so shocking is that extraordinary nature of reality on those journeys. Uh, And in that gateway valley, there were many earth-like features. For example, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. There were thousands of souls dancing in this beautiful meadow down below us, but it was much more like... Plato's world of forms, a world of ideals. And all of the festivity in this beautiful uh, realm were being fueled because angelic choirs up above, these swooping orbs of golden light leaving sparkling trails against the blue-black velvety sky were engendering this incredible sense of of mystery and of reality and uncovering deep truth. Um, And beside me on the butterfly wing, of course, was a, a guardian angel. Uh, and she proved to be absolutely essential uh, at my later unraveling of the reality of this journey, having to do with a photograph I received of a birth sister I had never known in life that arrived four months after my coma. And uh, in fact, though, that, uh, that beautiful realm with that, that lovely guardian angel and her message, which I think is a central message of proof of heaven, which, uh, which is for all of us. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You will be taken care of. Uh, and I encountered her numerous times in passing through that realm. But that was only a stepping stone to what I call the core. Uh, and what I would witness is all of the four-dimensional space-time and even what I call deep time, which is an order of causality in those lower spiritual realms. Uh, all of that collapsing down into this very complex oversphere that was used in that core realm as part of the lessons in the presence of that infinitely and indescribable, infinitely loving Uh, uh, Divine God force of pure love that so many who have been to that realm describe Whether through NDEs or other spiritually transformative experiences and in that core realm I Became identical with that force and that power It showed me the oneness of the universe and that our very consciousness is one With that power and in the ensuing ten years has been my effort to try and understand this in a modern scientific context And that's where I think proof of heaven the Map of Heaven, and especially the most recent book, co-written with my life partner and uh, collaborator and co-author in all of this, co-author of Living in a Mindful Universe, where we're finally connecting the dots and making sense of what this all really means for our unfolding sense of reality. Mm.
0: Pretty amazing story that you've, in a nutshell, given us, <laughs> everybody you know, out there. Of course, we'll have links to... Uh, Eben's books and uh, and certainly proof of heaven is um, you know what it creates uh, for me and uh, it's interesting because you talk about this in the last chapter uh, when you talk about visiting Ramdas one of the things you talk about was uh, his unbinding trust in the divine presence uh, different words but that's uh, I believe mm-hmm. central. And uh, we have been talking a lot about trust over the last uh, year or so. You know, we do these retreats with Ram Dass and Krishn and other Buddhist teachers in Maui. And this comes up a lot. And I'm especially fond of talking about it because I think it's uh, elemental to people to be able to take any step forward to uh, really uh, understanding and experiencing what it is that you've been talking about in Proof of Heaven and and in the new book as well. And uh, so one question around this, not a question, but... uh, You know, the fact that you had this organism, which was a rare organism, uh, related to getting meningitis, um, which I'm familiar with because my son as a baby got meningitis and came within a millimeter of losing his life, and that was an extraordinary experience, Um, Mm -hmm. one that I don't ever want to have again. I'll let you know that. Uh, Anyhow, but... The fact that uh, this happened to you out of nowhere, and it was a very rare occurrence, and the fact that you went through this and had this incredible experience, and the way that you have really investigated this over the last 10 years, as you just said, uh, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of what Ramdas has talked about in his own stroke, that, uh, you know, there's that famous film done called Fierce Grace, and, a, and in a way, uh, although you're seemingly uh, in pretty good shape now, uh, I think it took uh, quite a few months or maybe even longer to come out of this, but there was, it seems like there was a little bit of fierce grace. Do you, do you look back on this and, and the way that this happened allowed you to be sharing this kind of thing with people?
1: Oh, yeah. I, in, you know, like so many of the kind of hardships, challenges, difficulties we face in life, When you're in the middle of it, you can't possibly see how it's provided a gift or a lesson or uh, some uh, deep insight into the workings of the universe. But of course, looking back on it uh, over the last decade and progressively over time as I've tried to assimilate it all, it's become very clear that it was a beautiful gift. Um, the fact that it was E. coli, which almost always occurs Mm. in newborns, it's very rare to have E. coli meningitis in anybody older than three months of age. That provided a tremendous, you know, mystery to my doctors. Mm. Uh, Of course, they never determined anything you could call a medical cause of that illness. Um, But to me, it all has a perfectly obvious cause. And that has to do with a soul journey that I was to go on. Uh, In the process of learning and and there are you know literally millions of such accounts I believe that that every soul is involved uh, in this journey of discovery Basically the evolution of consciousness and I simply played a role that had to do with the fact that Modern materialist science seems to be stuck uh, At a certain point and they're unable to move beyond that in terms of any kind of elaboration of the nature of consciousness and relationship of brain and mind and so this was uh, uh, these journeys are always kind of tailored to the individual soul uh, but in many ways they also uh, are there to help all of us grow and learn and so uh, once I realized what had happened to me of course this is in the setting of, of having extreme damage to my brain when I first came back to this world I was completely amnesic uh, for the life of Eben Alexander before coma when I woke up in I st- Uh, I was amnesic for uh, any words, language, knowledge of earth or humanity, or certainly of details of Evan Alexander's belief systems during the entire uh, deep coma experience. Mm. When I came back to this world, waking up in that ICU bed, I did not even recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons standing at the bedside. I mean, my brain was wrecked. The words and language came back very rapidly, literally over hours and days. Childhood memories over weeks. As you pointed out, my, all my semantic knowledge, everything I ever knew about cosmology, physics, neuroscience, brain, mind, and consciousness, chemistry, and physics, every bit of that uh, returned over about eight weeks. And shockingly enough, uh, over the next few years, through various conversations, I came to realize that return of those memories was more complete than they had been before my coma. So there was a, a very profound evidence in my journey, especially for a neuroscientist, that consciousness is not created by the brain at all. In fact, I would say we're conscious in spite of our brain. It should be looked at more as uh, like a prison. And that's why the, the work of Ramdas, I think, is so important because it's, we're coming to realize now in modern scientific investigations, say of psychedelic drugs, and certainly of meditation and other exotic states of conscious awareness that the brain is not the producer of all this. It's more of a gatekeeper that seems to kind of shut down phenomenal conscious experience in many ways. And although that might sound mystifying to some out there, uh, those in the advanced reaches of modern neuroscience and philosophy of mind are very far along a pathway of realizing that just as the founders of quantum physics suggested, people like Wolfgang Pauli, Erwin Schrodinger, um, and... uh, many others, John von Neumann and Eugene Wigner, they suggested consciousness is fundamental in the universe. And in fact, uh, that is really the cornerstone of the book that Karen and I wrote, Living in a Mindful Universe, where we make a kind of soup to nuts case for how the individual seeker can understand this revolution in modern consciousness studies uh, that really points towards idealism. Ontological or metaphysical idealism the notion that the universe is mental uh, And that all the apparent physical universe emerges from the mental and not the other way around and it's been the source of tremendous confusion over many decades um, if not centuries and millennia But I believe we are finally able to start connecting the dots in a way that makes tremendous sense And it's a gift to humanity because it brings our highest aspirations and true free will of our higher soul to manifest the world of our dreams. Uh, This becomes a reality in this modern vision of the power of mind over matter.
0: And I should say, by the way, this was, you were nowhere near any of this before this happened to you, right? (laughs) You were a very pragmatic scientist, right? I was
1: basically stuck in the bottom left corner of my bedroom closet just as, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Real scientists are by studying the physical world. You get right down to studying the physical world. What you uncover is a lot of information about the physical world. But if you want to study consciousness, you have to study consciousness. Uh, and just because it's difficult, doesn't mean that's where you need to go. It reminds me of that story: the man who lost his car keys. Uh, you know, and somebody comes along and sees him groveling around under a streetlight, and says. What are you doing? He says, "I'm looking for my car keys." He said, "Did you drop them here?" And he says, "No, I dropped them over there." But it's way too dark. I'm looking for them here, where it's light. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, like <laughs> materialist Absolutely. scientists, you study material. You'll learn a lot about material. That's not what human experience is. It is consciousness, yeah. and the uh, there's a tremendous revolution going on now in the scientific world over the fundamental nature of consciousness and relationship of mind and brain, and that is exactly. Living in a mindful universe address.
0: Mm. Yeah, and of course, I know you've met His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and and many people know. We've talked about it here that he is doing a tremendous amount of work right in the core of the what you're talking about of uh, seeing that uh, the coming together of what the Tibetan Buddhists have been doing for centuries and mm-hmm. uh explicating and how that's all coming to to the fore with the uh with richie davidson and everybody else who's doing these scientific explorations
1: so absolutely i think his holiness uh, you know has been a tremendous inspiration to our work as we mentioned several times in living in a mindful universe uh, And and karen and i both had the great honor and privilege of, of meeting him in charlottesville um, back uh, about five or six years ago. Uh, and then soon thereafter, he, he read Proof of Heaven, and then he invited us out to graduation ceremony in the Tripa College, a Buddhist college out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and that was officially to discuss the scientific implications uh, in the modern era for reincarnation, because there is tremendous evidence, all thanks to Ian Stevenson, Jim Tucker, Division of Perceptual Studies at University of Virginia, where they've uncovered more than uh, 2700 cases of past life memories in children, where the best uh, explanation is really one of reincarnation. So, anyone who's interested in discussing the nature of reality, of uh, mind brain relationships, nature of consciousness, and memory must be explaining those kind of cases of reincarnation to make any sense uh, at all. And that's why I think uh, His Holiness's beautiful work, uh work of Tibetan Buddhists over. Many millennia really uh, has been a tremendous gift to this world because, in so many ways, Eastern mystical traditions were right on the beam even thousand years ago, thousands of years ago, about the nature of reality, which we are only now beginning to work into our modern scientific worldviews. Mm, yeah.
0: And uh, just a little something from the book, which I think, and you talk about the brain as a reducing valve or filter that reduces primordial consciousness down to a trickle. Uh, Nearly all religious and philosophical traditions have a sense that some part of our essential selves exists separately from our physical brains and bodies. Even those few without a clear vision of an afterlife include some ritual or practice focused on connecting humans with the divine and with their own enlarged, unfettered consciousness. Practices of Kabbalah, Christian mysticism, Sufi meditation, Buddhist mindfulness, and devotional prayer, among others. These are all ways people have accessed this larger sense of consciousness and a connection with a world uh, beyond their sight. Uh, You know, tremendously important. so people who have, uh, and again, I I go back to the uh, trust thing. Because reading this book and reading your experience and, uh, and of course, it helps uh, the profession that you come from and uh, the life that you had previously helps people to realize, oh, wait a minute now. What I do believe is only me, 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 the big I, maybe that's not the case. and uh, And so I love this little passage because it does... Uh, I think goes a long way to help people to understand, okay, you can take a little bit of a leap forward, right? You can uh, at least be open to um, the possibility that you are not who you think you are. And, and again, referencing Ram Dass' work, he's been talking about identity and the way I, mm-hmm. we identify with ourselves uh, and our roles and our, our minds and so on. Um, so... Yeah, I think um, this idea that, uh, in in another place you suggest, mind is much more than it can be explained by brain, I think that's an important um, point. uh, This whole thing, the evidence that the brain is not the producer of consciousness. You want to talk about that a a little bit? I mean, you give some examples here uh, uh, by which this is proved out.
1: Right. Well, I think uh, you know, several important examples uh, we give uh, about uh, consciousness in relation to between brain and mind, uh, for example, terminal lucidity, mm. uh, that phenomenon often seen in elderly demented patients as they approach death. A uh, typical case would be someone who hasn't been able to utter a meaningful phrase for months if their brain is so horrifically damaged um, at the end of life. And then often what hospice workers and nurses who care for these patients and families will see and report, and this is very common, uh, is the fact that as they approach death, they seem to wake up in a way that completely defies modern neuroscience and its false notion of brain-creating consciousness. They return to conscious awareness, to deep memory, reflection, communication with loved ones at the bedside, often at a time Uh, when souls of departed loved ones are appearing to them to escort them over. Terminal lucidity is a game changer. When you see it, and there are so many examples out there, it absolutely changes your notion of the reality of soul, the eternity of consciousness, uh, and that we are far more than our physical bodies. And we are far more than just birth to death in this little incarnation. Uh, I would say acquired savant syndromes were some form of brain damage, Causes greatly enhanced mental function. It's also an example of how the brain is just a filter, uh, but not the producer of consciousness. And then, of course, the other thing we talk about in living in a mindful universe are those beautiful scientific examples from the modern era uh, where people under the influence of psychedelic drugs like psilocybin, DMT, dimethyltryptamine from ayahuasca, um, LSD, uh, and other such substances. Uh, have profound experiences that you can actually measure with a visual analog scale across multiple axes. Uh, So you can measure the intensity and the profundity of their experience and what uh, investigators at Imperial College in London back in 2012 under Robin Carhart-Harris and then uh, other teams like in Brazil looking at DMT and ayahuasca Uh, and then in 2015, another paper out of Imperial College of London looking at LSD And they they were all using functional MRI, but that third paper also used magnetoencephalography. And they all showed the same thing, which is shocking to those who want to believe the brain creates consciousness. And that is the more profound the experience, uh, the more robust and extraordinary, the more the brain shuts down.
0: Mm, Yeah, very
1: far. It is surprising. But to me, it made perfect sense because uh, I was shocked by the fact that progressive dismantling of my neocortex allowed for such an exotic journey of expanded consciousness. Now, important to point out that in my 10 years since and trying to make sense of this, the last eight years, I've spent a tremendous amount of time going within consciousness. You must explore through meditation uh, is my recommended mode. And for that, I'm most grateful to Karen Newell because her work with sacred acoustics and differential frequency uh, brain entrainment uh, utilizing an ancient circuit in the lower brain stem that arose more than 300 million years ago in evolutionary neurobiology provides an incredibly powerful tool to the individual seeker to greatly enhance their meditation and to escape the false notion of the here and now and sense of self. So, for that, I think Sacred Acoustics and Karen Newell uh, and her work are to be greatly commended. Mm.
0: Yeah, I was going to actually ask you. Uh, th- it appears karen that you have provided in um, a heart centric experience in this book which to me is extraordinarily important it's what happened to us when ramdas went back to india a few well few a number of us actually very small when you think about today how many people have been turned on to ramdas's books but uh, and when we went there that was that Heart. Uh, I mean, we had basically what happened to Eben in this coma and his. Um, I call it a darshan, being in the presence of. Basically, we had that with a, a living human being who was. And I'm sure Ramdas talked to you about it when you went over uh, to Maui with him, and so and he was the uh, has been our example of the potential of a human being to uh, n- not be in the eye anymore and to be living, uh, loving, unconditional love. And so that heart, so we had the, the, the power, the mental thing, the experience, uh, but then it was a matter of the opening of, of heart for us that became, and our practice, our main practice that we came back with is uh, chant prayer, whatever, you know, in that general uh, category and, and meditation as well. But can you talk about, uh, I'd I like the elucidate about heart consciousness, which I read in the book. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, what's so interesting, speaking of Ram Dass, when I, when I first met Ram Dass in Maui, I actually felt him first. I didn't see him. It was a crowded restaurant. He was in his wheelchair, so he was lower than the rest of the crowd. And when I walked into the restaurant, I felt my heart activate. I already kind of had that very strong awareness of my heart field. And I felt it activate, And I didn't know what it was that usually there's an event or something that, that uh, sets it off. And I was like, wow. And what I mean by that is I felt this very warm feeling in my heart and I felt it expand and I felt it encompass me. Just my own love energy was activated. And as I got closer to where Ramdas was, I realized that energy was coming from him and he was, sitting there, as you say, as a living presence of being the love. That uh, is a phrase that I learned, be the love that you are uh, prior to meeting Rondos. But I realized that's exactly what he was doing, and I felt it. There is no need for talking when it comes to the heart. You feel it, and so many of us are not used to doing that. When we speak about love in our culture, I know for me when I was in my earlier relationships in life, I was loving with my mind. I was loving with my thoughts. I was loving with behaving a certain way. It wasn't from a deep sense of feeling. And uh, of course, that came later in life when I started to focus on my heart. I was actually very inspired uh, by the work of HeartMath in uh, California, where they actually study the heart field. And so many of us in our Western culture, we want to have a piece of science. We want to have a piece of science that will tell us This is real because we've been so conditioned to think that anything that's unseen is just imaginative or a hallucination and we get made fun of when we speak about it in some settings. And so having this science behind the heart was very useful and realizing that there's an electromagnetic field electromagnetic field that comes out of the heart in the shape of a torus field, it goes around your body like this, A very useful visualization what they've discovered is this heart field actually expands and contracts based on the emotional state of the person who, whose heart it is. And so Ram Dass, you know, sitting there being love, he had this amazingly large heart field because I felt it from many, many feet away, probably 30, 40 feet away. Uh, they can't really measure the full depth or breadth of this heart field because every time they create a device that can measure it, it reaches the maximum that, that device can measure. So I like to think it's unlimited, this heart field. And the most interesting thing to me about the HeartMath research is that our hearts actually influence the people around us. And so mm-hmm. if yeah. someone is sitting with what HeartMath calls a coherent state, which at its very simplest is just generating a feeling of gratitude, anything that you're grateful for. For me, that was puppies. It can be anything, babies, trees, whatever you want, but anything without any baggage, uh, feeling that gratitude. They've done experiments where people sit across the table from someone and uh, someone who's performing that coherence technique will actually influence both the brain waves and the heart rate variability of the person sitting across from them. So this is happening throughout our day all day long and most of us don't even think about this. And so I kind of have come to call this the ultimate golden rule. (laughs) <laughs> Where by placing only warm, loving kinds of thoughts in your heart, in your feeling state, you're actually influencing people around you without even saying a word. And so many of us might be concerned about other people's negative heart fields influencing us. And really, the you can't manage anyone's heart but your own. And so generating those feelings of gratitude and peace from within. If every person on the planet would take time to do this at least once a day, our world would move much closer to world peace than we could possibly imagine
0: and uh, rather pointedly uh, good advice in the times that we are living to do that than uh, create the negativity that uh, we are in reaction to uh, given given the circumstances that we're in in our social political atmosphere here in this country, so yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I, again, that's so important. That's so much a part of who we are at Ramdas and, and all of us that were in India with Neem Karoli Baba. And uh, I, I think it's super important because uh, you talk a lot about going within in this book and really investigating. And you don't need to have a stroke uh, a stroke with Ramdas or a, a coma with Eben or a, even a, a psychedelic trip. None of that is necessary. Uh, when you really do the self-investigation, there, there is, uh, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It will appear because that's the nature of the universe and, and, and you can read Eben's book, uh, uh, Proof of Heaven, and really get a sense of, of that. Um, there's something else here that I think is really uh, important uh, and you call it uh, deep time. Um, and your experience in the coma of of time flow in the physical universe uh, was really quite radically different. Can you talk about deep time? Because I think that's an important aspect of all of this.
1: I think, first of all, it's important to point out uh, for the lay audience that time itself is a very profound mystery uh, in physics. In fact, at our kind of human scale, this big scale that we live in, the only... uh, kind of feature of physics that even gives a direction to the arrow of time, that is, it has time flowing to the future as opposed to the past, uh, is the second law of thermodynamics, which is a statistical law applied to large numbers of particles, like lots of um, atoms or molecules or what have you. Uh, But when you really get down to the workings of those individual particles uh, in in the quantum world, Uh, Time can easily just kind of exist in loops. It doesn't move forward or backward. And uh, we seem to be really in a very deep and concrete sense living in a now. Uh, And of course, it's it's clear you can point out that our language uh, gives us this notion that there's a past and a future, that we're in a present. But uh, that's a trick of language, because the only thing that has ever existed is a now. I think that was one of the most beautiful gifts for the Native American culture. They were stable over tens of thousands of years. Uh, They didn't really have this concept of past and future and a fear of not having enough in the future. Hmm. Uh, And so it was a tremendous gift in many ways to be liberated from the craziness of uh, kind of time and the way our ego uses that, especially with fear and anxiety, uh, to kind of force us into certain thoughts about that past and future. Whereas, in fact we really can be far more comfortable just living in that now. Uh, I believe that uh, from my point of view, and and we discuss in Living in a Mindful Universe, for example, the experiments of Daryl Bim, you know, uh, in New York, the psychologist who did some amazing experiments that have been replicated around the world, where he basically showed that if you have a model where a computer presents a, a kind of an image, either a very violent, horrible image, or very peaceful uh, soft image or a neutral image, that in fact, the subject knows uh, kind of the nature of the image that will be presented before the random number generator in the computer has even selected the image. This is astonishing. And you can bet that Daryl Bim ran into a firestorm criticism. Mm. But what the experiment shows us in a very real sense is that what we like to think of as past, present, and future are not really so written in stone as we would uh, surmise. And then in fact, we have tremendous power over either knowing or creating the future. Uh, Depends on how you interpret those experimental results. So whether you believe everything is predetermined, which I do not, Uh, I believe in fact the whole universe exists for sentient beings to live in this now and to manifest choices out of love and oneness, compassion, and forgiveness. Uh, I believe that's the most direct pathway towards oneness with the divine. But the concept of deep time is something that was very apparent to me on my journey. Um, and in many ways, I would say the concept of deep time is kind of a stepping stone or crutch towards a realization that we truly live in an eternal now, and that nothing matters except the now, that all events of the past are only important uh, insofar as they are a record in the now. For example, another thing we discuss in the book is John Wheeler, the famous Princeton uh, physicist uh, who survives towards the end of his life that the deep lessons of quantum physics implied what he called a participatory anthropic principle, which is the notion that nothing exists, including uh, the uh, quantum state of various photons uh, aimed our way from a quasar that might be a billion light years away that it doesn't exist until it's observed by the mind, the observing mind in the present. And these are very deep features of time that we need to understand. I would say deep time is what became apparent to me from those spiritual realms about an entirely different higher ordering that kind of marks the progress of our souls and soul groups in their journey, which is basically all part of the evolution of consciousness itself. Uh, but the earth time that we're also used to here in this world is really only part of the stage setting uh, to allow for the drama to unfold. But uh, at a, in a very real sense, it's only there, uh, kind of like our costumes and physical bodies, uh, to serve as an ordering mechanism that is not fundamental at heart. That deep time allows for a whole different notion of, of understanding and of enhancement of knowledge. And the very uh, expansion of information, uh, which I believe is, is at the core of what we uh, look at as dark energy, that is the expansive force of the universe. Mm. You know, just
0: imagine when we went back to India uh, with Ram Dass, he, he was he is older than most of us that went back with him. And so we were in our early 20s when we went there knowing nothing and being completely, I mean, I wouldn't say that naive. We had some idea, mostly through psychedelics, actually. Uh, and, and in fact, without that, it would have been a little difficult for us to really grok, uh, quote-unquote, uh, that being. Uh, but uh, when I read about uh, this whole notion of, uh, of time, uh, it just made me think of when I first sat down... Uh, things happened. It went on for, I mean, I think the first time I actually sat with this, uh, with Neem Karoli Baba, it was maybe an hour. And I got up and I realized, for the first time in my life, I had not been in the future. I had not been in the past. I was in this eternal moment, which I, I have words for now, but I did not have words for then. So th- that uh what happened to you through this coma happened to me and us in uh, on the physical planes just sitting down with this being so you know I, I was really touched because you're your explanations even are incredible, and they give voice to stuff that I could not give voice to certainly then and and now even. So yeah, that was a, that was a thrill to read about that and identify in the way that I did with my experience. Um, the power of prayer is one of the chapters uh, in the book, and uh, you know that's. Uh, that's something, again, that I had no real idea about because I, I was brought up uh, uh, in the Jewish religion and rebelled against it and none of it made sense and so on. You know, the usual thing that happened to many of us in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and uh, But certainly uh, I had deep experiential um, uh, processes that happened when I was in India that made me understand this, the power of, uh, of prayer, prayer through, um, ritualistic mantras, uh, prayer through chanting and so on. Uh, but in this chapter, um, you, you do talk about it related to, and I'd love for you to just talk about it a little bit because I think it's interesting for people, especially, Around uh, we've just recently we've had several people who have lost uh, uh, family members and so on and and uh, we have one very close member of our family from back in the India days who's passing as we speak and uh, and talking about and you know fundamentalists talk about the power of prayer and they charge a hundred bucks for each prayer, you know kind of a thing so it can get really materialistic. Uh, But, uh, you know, as you speak about it here, that power is real. And, uh, and the things that we can do for people related to that power uh, is, uh, if it's done purely is very important. Maybe you can talk a little bit about it as you did in the book.
1: Yeah, well, you bring up uh, several very good points. And uh, I'd simply like to point out that to me, it was a very visceral, absolute, and kind of concrete realization. Because as I describe in Truth of Heaven, uh, as I was kind of uh, coming back to these realms from those highest spiritual realms, uh, I was kind of thrust back into that kind of murky earth or my view realm, uh, which is where I witnessed thousands of beings around me off into the distance, uh, all this murmuring energy coming from them, many with heads bowed and candles and, uh, with their, their hands like this and of course when I wrote it all up weeks later I said that they were praying and that that energy was so incredibly uh, Refreshing and enlivening to me uh, because I had come to believe that that murky realm didn't really host much of that loving energy And I had seen Tremendous oceans of that love in the Gateway Valley and in the core realm So now that I was kind of banished to this lowest of spiritual realms. I was shocked the fact that those beings around me, with that murmuring energy and words I could not understand at all, were delivering to me this incredible gift of love and comfort and oneness. So I had this uh, extremely powerful experience of prayer, of others praying for me, and that kind of started me on that pathway. I will say that uh, my sense of prayer, though, has changed dramatically uh, since my coma, and it has mainly to do with the fact that now for me, prayer is a form of deep A meditation, centering prayer that turns off a little voice in my head. So Mm -hmm. even though I might state a little intention with that voice in my head before going into prayer and meditation, um, I then set that little voice free because this is all about a trust I have that the universe will provide whatever is best for me. And I may not know what that is. I mean, I wouldn't have predicted before my coma that meningitis would be the best thing for me. I wouldn't have necessarily prayed for that. And yet looking back on it, it was one of the greatest blessings of my life. So I pray that thy will not mine be done. That is trust in that uh, beautiful uh, force of love that is so strong that when millions of Indy ears come back to this world, just from having touched that beauty and love and connection, they know there's nothing to fear about death at all. I think Karen has another beautiful story from our book. Well, I
2: I actually want to just point out that, you know, Eben spoke about that just this moment. He said this love that NDEers touch and bring back to this world. And I have to tell you, it's not just for For NDEers, guys. It's for everybody. (laughs) Because I've talked to Eben and many other NDEers, and some of them will say, oh, you can't bring that love back here. It's for over there. And they've felt it, the huge power of it. And I got to tell you, I've felt it. I've felt that amazing force of love through meditation, just by quieting my mind, uh, many other kind of mental steps you can take to get there, but you can reach a space and I've met other people like me who just in meditation have touched that love. And I truly believe we can bring that love to this planet, that it's not just for the other side. And we can do that by really just requesting, first of all, we do that by building the love from within. That's where it starts. We must generate it from within. It comes from nowhere external. We're not going to find love. It's like the universe. Well, we're <laughs> not going to find love from Cadillacs and uh, relationships. Even we're going to find it through our own inner heart. But then, what we can do is actually invite the love of Source. I call it Source. You can call it God. You can call it the Force. Whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter. I invite that love of Source to actually enter through the top of my head and join with my heart. And when you do this mentally over and over again and generate it in your own self, you actually attract that love to come to you. And by combining that with that heart golden rule, I mentioned earlier, bringing that, generating it from within, bringing that love of source from within, we absolutely can bring it to this world. And I think that we're in the midst of doing that. I think that uh, more and more people are starting to realize this value of going within. I know there's a lot of cynical people out there also who maybe have been at this since the 60s and 70s and have just thought, "Ha, hey, nobody's listening to us. I know Evan comes across some NDE researchers all excited about this change coming to the world. And these researchers kind of roll their eyes and say, we've known about this for 50 years. Mm. And uh, yet, I think there is a shift going. And sometimes it takes one of those uh, kind of gifts of desperation. I think in this case, it's a collective gift of desperation for the entire world. All of the troubles we seem to find ourselves in, at least if you watch the news, all they seem to report is all of the conflict going on. These are opportunities to say, enough. We want to make a change. We must make a change. And we flipped the opposite. And I think that uh, we're in the midst of doing that right now. And uh, hopefully, as more and more people get involved with this, the people who aren't paying attention will be affected by by us, just by nature of our presence. And so I actually have to tell you, I just love that you run this network, that you're spreading this uh, message of Ramdas, because Be Here Now was a seminal book, but I got to say be love now is kind of where we got to get ourselves. And, uh, you know, when I first met Evan, he would talk about this love and he talked about it a lot, but he talked about it very academically and very theoretically. And I asked him, I said, well, do you love yourself? Do you feel that love from within? And he stopped and paused and said, Oh, I don't think I do. And it's not uncommon for people not to feel that love. And yet, we can do it. He had that reference point for his near-death experience, which I suggested he tap into that and try to generate that from within. And I believe now you might have another answer to that question. What do you think? Do you love yourself now?
1: I have finally become a <laughs> in that love. Now, I, I've been able to do it in meditation. Uh, the thing was, in, in this world, that you know, in this uh, normal waking reality, to feel that and live that. Because as Karen said, I was kind of in my head about it, you know, as a former Harvard academic neurosurgeon. I kept kind of talking about these concepts. And what Karen brought to me, among many things, uh, was this beautiful knowing, uh, identification with the power of that love to become uh, the purity of that love. It's, it's the, the, the greatest way to love ourselves. And I realized from my journey that most of the world's problems are because we don't even love ourselves enough. We've, we've lost sight of the divinity, of the sacred connection we share with the co-creative love of this universe, that God for us. And it's recovering that sense, which we can all do as sentient beings. You don't need to be smoked down by meningitis. But by going within and being open to the fact that by exploring consciousness, and especially heart consciousness, uh, as Karen often emphasizes in her meditations, uh, we can become the love that we actually are and serve as a point of light to channel uh, conduit uh, that beautiful infinitely healing power of love uh, into this world through our choices actions and behaviors and uh, everything that we do in our lives mm. sounds like you should have a lot of
0: gratitude to your guardian angel i would call guru whatever that thing inside all of us for uh, getting karen Over to you there.
1: Absolutely. true. (laughs) Gratitude, especially for Karen and what she's brought to my life. Notion of heart consciousness and incredible sage wisdom about the deep interconnectedness of all making sense of the one mind that we are all sharing. I'm very grateful to Karen and and the gifts she brings the world in the form of sacred acoustic, very powerful Mm. uh, sounds engender uh, transcendental states of consciousness, I think is, uh, move beyond words in terms of the gratitude i would like to express
0: yeah and uh guys everybody listening out there when you uh if you're interested and in get the book uh it's well uh annotated in here uh around uh karen's uh methodology with sound uh, and rhythm so uh, i'll leave that to you when you get this is a, a very rich book and and for me to even pick out little things here and there just give you a sort of taste of it but one of the other things uh, that i think is extraordinarily important is uh when you start to speak about intention i mean to me uh Developing trust, and there's a lot in this book around trust, and, and uh, there's some stuff uh, from His Holiness the Dalai Lama and your interaction with him around that as well. Uh, but once you have established that trust somehow, through some means, however it may be, uh, then intention is, uh, as you say here, intention is a tool of your inner observer's focused attention that can be employed to achieve uh uh, these objectives these objectives to me of going inside and really discovering your true nature so yeah talk about uh, intention and attention because without these um very difficult to put one foot in uh, in front of the other
2: well what's so interesting is our attention and intention are present all the time every choice we make there's an underlying intention for why we're making it where our, our attention is somewhere all day long but most of us don't pay attention to that we're in reactive mode just, things come in and we just immediately react that we can kind of take the wheel back and start to manage our kind of unfolding rea- reality by paying attention to those underlying intentions now many of those underlying intentions that we're not so aware of are related to different belief systems and these can get us into all kinds of trouble when we Start to believe things, uh, maybe political beliefs, religious beliefs, uh, wh- what have you, gender beliefs, uh, cultural beliefs, personal beliefs uh, that you have about yourself. Beliefs are usually not the capital T truth. They're usually some interpretation of an event, and when they when they're involved in our underlying it- intentions, it can really start to muddy the waters when we want to get something going in our life, and so. We've all heard of affirmations, the law of attraction, just repeat uh, phrases over and over again for things that you want. But that's just a mental exercise. Unless underneath there's a real strong kind of, as you say, trust and understanding that all of this is related, it's just not gonna work. And that again is where the heart comes in, kind of feeling your intention, not just stating the words of an intention. I think it goes back to the prayer and much of the prayer that we learn in all the religions, Jewish especially has so many prayers where they get together and just, you know, rattle them off. You know, where's the feeling behind that? So when I talk about intention, setting an intention, you really have to have the feeling behind your intention along with the words. And uh, a real simple way of doing that 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 uh, we often recommend in our workshops is to just come up with one word, one word that satisfies the result that you want your intention to achieve. So for example, if you want to be successful at a project at work, something simple like that, you would think, how would you feel once that uh, project was completed successfully? And maybe it's that word success. So you think success, success, and you feel successful. And in your mind, you kind of attach that to the uh project itself and i could call that entanglement in quantum physics terms you're entangling your intention with that event and when you do that with your mind and then go into that feeling state we often recommend doing it in meditation to just feel what it feels like to be success assume that you have already reached that success and trust that however that success should be reached the universe source god what have you will provide for it and many times we get hung up on how we want our intention to appear and this is where we can be getting in our own way as well and it really is useful to just trust that whatever feeling state you're in will be delivered to you and so when we get hung up in all of our negative feelings and all of our kind of poor me i'm a victim of this that and the other and if only my boss was different, or the weather was different, or or whatever, the governor was different, Uh, everything would be better. And that's just not the case. It's our perception of events. It's our ability to hold what we wish to achieve from within that will eventually deliver that success that we're looking for.
0: Yeah. And I would uh, maybe take it into another uh, realm, uh, uh, which is something that I do talk about with people around intention uh, because, you know, people have a hard time keeping their just plain old life in balance between, you know, Mm -hmm. they find uh, their spiritual selves to one degree or another, and then they want to, okay, what do I do now uh, is uh, very much part of the dialogue for them. And, And I always say, well, you've got to, and just exactly what you're saying develop that internal intention to uh, uh, deal with your attachments your desires uh, to to do the kinds of practices that are necessary to retrain your brain and then we go into of course neuroscience and and everything that uh, neurotransmitters and every everything that we're you know it's the dialogue that's being had today that proves that you can do this you can change your habitual patterns but it takes that that intention that you're talking about uh to be able to do that there there's we're we're getting a little close to here uh the end oh boy Mm -hmm. i could go on here for another hour or two but we're not Mm -hmm. gonna (laughs) i do want to say there there's one thing it's important uh, and certainly uh, a very, very difficult subject. And you've, uh, you've mentioned it briefly, uh, and, and it's around reincarnation. It's really karma and reincarnation in the East, which is crucial to understanding how we go through. Uh, this is not the only moment, <laughs> this incarnation, that we go through what we need to go through as a learning experience. And you talk, reincarnation is a process of education for all beings in the grander evolution of consciousness. This apparently standard procedure was part of the lessons I learned in my coma journey. Reincarnation was presented in the core realm as part of the very fabric of all existence, not as some blind mechanistic wheel, as in some interpretations, but a process that is more directly related to our soul's purpose of existence and transformation. Reincarnation was the best way to reconcile the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, and infinitely loving deity I encountered with the suffering of innocent beings allowed in our world, especially children and animals. Um, I that is such a great uh, paragraph from this book that alone um, mm-hmm. is worth the price of admission so to speak uh, because uh, if you know that's why when you go to the East and, and you're in India or, or whatever Tibet or any of these countries um, and people have been living this for thousands of years it's in their DNA and the famous story of uh, Ramdas tells about, and it happened to me as well, going to Benares, the city where people go to die and are burned on the banks of the Ganges River. And he met um, uh, up with people when he first went there. He met up with people who were you know, begging and people, who were lepers and so on. And all he felt was sorry and disturbed about meeting these people. And uh, pity and all the usual crazy-ass Western stuff that goes on. And uh, and then he looked in their eyes and when he went back the second time where he could actually see after he met Neem Karoli Baba. And he saw they were looking at him. Oh, God, poor guy. Mm-hmm. He is so lost.
1: You know, it that's was what, a complete reversal. What, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, It's it's a beautiful uh, lesson, but it should be clear to um, pretty much any sentient being, um, you know, that that, uh, our our gifts and our mission and uh, why we're here is very different from the accumulation of material wealth and competition with others. Because, in fact, if we are all part of one mind, which is exactly where all of this thinking is going, and we're dreaming the dream of that one mind and that we are bound together through love, then the way that we make progress in, in why we came to earth in the first place is all about honoring that beautiful connection, which includes taking care of the least, the last, and the lost, and realizing that the greatest uh, gift that we can feel, the greatest good we can feel, is from helping others and the higher good. Uh, this focus on you know self and egotistical issues and, and material wealth is horribly damaging to the soul that has to go through it. Mm. Um, and much better that we all discover, uh, this much higher pathway that gives us far greater richness. Um, you know, reincarnation is, uh, basically a scientifically established fact, as far as I'm concerned, based on the Dobson Division of Perceptual Studies. And, in, in, in the growth of that field over the last 50 or 60 years, there's also been a, a burgeoning of transpersonal psychology. The idea that we've all been here together, that our lives are interconnected. The best way to look at evolution of any soul is basically as a thread in this beautiful tapestry of the evolution of all uh, consciousness. And the more we can realize that, and that the only way to really explain the issues, challenges, and uh, correct actions in this life is to realize I've been here before. So have many of the beings I'm associated with in this lifetime, and we built up a a pattern of relationships. Uh, and we are here to enhance that, grow that, learn and teach from all of those lifetimes that we've uh, that we've lived. Uh, and this is the way to best uh, arrange for kind of the the proper karma of that next lifetime we're coming back to.
0: Yeah. Well said. I, I feel like saying Amen right now uh, <laughs> <man>. it's true <laughs> <laughs> thank you for it's being here for both me. of you yeah thank you thank you karen thank you evan it's been uh, wonderful i i uh, i'm glad that uh, ramdas uh connected me with you and uh i'm, I'm glad we had this moment and
1: uh, thank you and yes, our you. gratitude to ramdas especially what an absolutely beautiful uh, soul to help lead this world into peace harmony uh and uh, and just beauty and may
2: i add he does it by modeling yeah. not he not preaching it. he actually he it, models it and that is the that is the way our children learn they they imitate their parents they don't listen to us yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly so, yeah excellent yeah. Thank you.
0: exactly exactly All right, well, we wish you the best. And uh, by the way, everybody listening, you'll be able to uh, get uh, links to all of the books and uh, everything that we're talking about. And um, we'll also, uh, I think, Eben and Karen, there's a a website that people can refer to. Uh,
1: What is it? Well, uh, one would be Eben, E-B, E-N, Alexander.com. And then of course
2: uh, sacredacoustics.com as well
0: right okay great and so we'll have all those links and uh thank you for being on mind rolling on be here now network and everybody will see you next week
1: thanks so much for having us mitchell talk soon okay
2: thank you
1: namaste